Well, anyway, it is a pleasure to be with you and to be reading God's Word together. And uh, it's always a, a bit of suspense moving into a new book. Where are we going? Where? Well, we will be going to 1 John. So if you could turn to the New Testament towards the end, we're going to start the book of 1 John. And I think on the heels of a historical narrative, it seems like a perfect thing, way to go because it's emphasizing the light, the love, the life that we have in Jesus. And uh, it took the power of God to rebuild that wall in Nehemiah's day. In 52 days, it was built. It hadn't been built for over 100 years. And they, they, they knew that God did it and their enemies recognized it took God to build this wall. And when it comes to having fullness of joy, walking in the light, loving one another, we need God to have that happen in us. We need God's help to love others. Like if we think we can love like God loves on our own, we'll be like trying to build that wall out of rubble. It will not happen. But praise be to God. He's given us all we need that pertains to life and godliness, and we can experience the fullness of joy. We can have fellowship with God and with one another. And so we'll jump in. But let's, let's pray before we do and seek God's blessing upon this time. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and the power of it, that you have a new life for us. And I pray that we would come to you hungry this morning and thirsty, hungry to know your will and thirsty to know your presence and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, to go deeper into a relationship with you like we've never known, not to be content with our current level of knowledge or maturity, but that we would lay our lives down as at the very beginning. Uh, and desiring that your will would be accomplished in our lives, that you would do marvelous things in and through us. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus and all he's done, and for an opportunity to celebrate and to remember his sacrifice. And thank you, Lord, that as he was raised in newness of life, so we can be, even today, Lord. So we ask your hand to be upon us, that you would open our eyes, you would fill us with your spirit, that we might understand your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so a little background on the book. Um, this epistle written by Apostle John doesn't follow the typical format. An epistle is a letter, so it was written by John. And uh, he doesn't identify himself by name. Like a lot of them, at the beginning or at the very end, you'll see who actually dictated the letter or who wrote it with his own hand. But in this case, uh, the author does not, in the text, identify himself. But when we take all of Scripture together, uh, and we also take the tradition of early church fathers like Clement and Irenaeus and Polycarp, he was the bishop of Smyrna who actually knew John. He was one of uh, the men that John trained and taught. Uh, unquestionably support him as the writer. And as we read other things that he's written, like uh, 1, 2, 3 John, the Gospel of John, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, John is the author of those by the Holy Spirit. And it's also not addressed to a specific group of people, like um, Philippians, for instance, is written to the fellowship in Philippi. Um, Romans is written to the Romans. This is written to a, it's a general letter to all Christians. It was written towards the end of the first century. And uh, so it's, Within 10 years, they figure um, it was written towards the end of that century. 
And it's good for us to also think about the author. Who wrote it? What's his story? Now, the fact that his age was advanced, he's calling people little children. It, 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 he was an, an older person. He, uh, we see that it was written towards the end of his life. He's commonly called John the Evangelist or John the Divine. It might be appropriate to call him the Apostle of Love because that was something that he emphasized in the gospel. Um, he was the younger brother of James. He was a fisherman by trade. His, his parents owned a very uh, profitable fi- fishing venture. We know this because they actually had servants that helped them. Uh, and that's mentioned in a, a, one of the gospels. He was born to Zebedee and Salome, and he was among the first disciples called by Jesus. He was believed to be about 10 years younger than Jesus when he was called. And though he was young, he was given privileged access. There were times where Jesus would take James, Peter, and John aside, like with with the Mount of Transfiguration, when he healed uh, Jairus' daughter, or raised her from the dead, really. And when he prayed in Gethsemane, he called John to come along with him. So he, he had a very close relationship to Jesus. He also had a nickname. James and John were called the Sons of Thunder because of their zeal for God. There's a couple of little, we don't see why. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm calling that because, but we see in his life, um, when they went through a Samaritan village that did not uh, receive Jesus, they said, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and, you know, destroy them like Elijah did? And he's like, hey, you guys don't know what spirit you're of. Um, He was zealous for Jesus. Remember when? He's like, we saw people casting out demons in your name and they don't follow us. We told them, knock that off. We forbade them. And Jesus is like, whoa, don't. So there was this uh, rawness, this exuberance um, in John and James to be given this nickname, Sons of Thunder. Um, And we see he had a really close relationship with Jesus. He was the one who was leaning on Jesus while they they were eating the Passover meal. And he's the one who, when Jesus was dying on the cross, John is the only mentioned disciple or apostle who, who saw that uh, of the 12. Let me just be clarifying. Of the 12, he's the only one who was an eyewitness to Christ's crucifixion. Everyone else had fled. But from the cross, Jesus said, you know, mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And so he entrusted care of Mary, Jesus being the oldest, to John. So we see they had a close connection. There was trust that had developed. John and Peter, among the first disciples to see the empty tomb. He ran to the tomb and saw that it was empty. And uh, in the Gospel of John, he refers to himself many times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had received the love of God. He, He basked in that love. And we see it really flavor his writing. So what's the purpose of the letter? We know a little bit about the history, but why did he write it? And I'm going to go to four verses to because it's scattered throughout the letter. And really the inductive Bible study came at a great time because I just practiced my epistle outline with it. And uh, you can separate ideas and get an understanding of the point. Why are we reading this letter? So the first that we see in 1 John 1, 4. It says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And this suggests explicitly that God 
has joy, fullness of joy, and it's his will that our joy would be full. So that's one reason why this letter was written. We may not always feel happy, but we can have joy regardless of our circumstances because God is the one who gives us this joy and fullness of joy. So there's no more room, complete, total joy in him. We'll see as we read today that we may not be experiencing his joy because we haven't met his conditions. He does have some conditions. So the second reason he writes was to prevent sin. We see this in 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. So to keep people from sin. In the book, we have really definite contrasts. We have light and darkness, truth and lies, antichrist and Christ, love of God, love of the world, uh, children of God, children of the devil. So there's very clear um, objective truth where he is going to make contrasts. And this is helpful for us so that we can know right from wrong, so that we can discern truth from error and the importance of it. We have to know the truth so we can avoid pitfalls and deceptions, right? The third thing we see in 1 John 2, 21. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. And this is interesting. Because you would think if you knew the truth, why would you need to be written to about the truth? Well, it's because deceptions had come in. Even in the early church, people were not experiencing the joy of the Lord. People were being sucked into different sins and problems. And so he's saying, I'm writing to you who know the truth. That's why I'm writing to you, because you know the truth, and I want you to be continuing in the truth. That love and the joy of the Lord, it's shown in deeds and in truth. It's not just something in our minds, but it's a reality. There were people who claimed to love love God, but they hated their brother. And he's saying, this is hypocrisy. If you say you, you love God, but you hate your brother, the love of God isn't in you, because if you love God, you will love your brother. And so he was correcting that. They believed in God, they trusted in God, but there were inconsistencies. And so that's why he was writing to people in the church so that their lives would be in line with the truth of God's word. Finally, in 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So God has assurance of salvation for those who trust in him, And those who trust in him, we should keep on believing and endure. Anyone here ever run a race, especially a long-distance race, and you started off the blocks a bit quick, and you hit the wall? You know, you just lost, you got puffed, you could not continue. Or uh, you, you you did not finish with the same gusto that you started with. And so we, through Christ, we have the ability to start well and to finish well. So he's saying, you believe, well, endure till the end. Keep on believing. Keep that same level of faith and increase your faith rather than slacking with your faith and becoming kind of dead in your life. So there's discouragements, but we're overcomers. We have victory through Jesus. So keep going. Keep believing. So to sum up, he wrote so we could have fullness of joy, keep from sin because we know the truth, so that we could know we have eternal life 
and to keep on believing. That's really the, the reason why he wrote this letter. And when we think of that, it's very relevant, isn't it? That because we know the truth, the truth has set us free, but we need to keep doing what's right and keep growing in faith. So let's just read through the passage we'll tackle this morning. 1 John 1, starting verses 1 through 4. This <clears throat> is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John was an eyewitness of the truth, and he declared the truth. And this is a great challenge for us. We believe the truth. We would, would say that we know the truth. Do we declare the truth? Are our lives declaring it? A light is not lit and then placed under a bed. Right? A light is put on a table or in an elevated place so that it gives light to all who are in the room. So it's like the light is not to be hidden. The truth of God isn't to be hidden. It's to be declared openly. So that's a challenge for us. So we're going to go through these verses one by one. Uh, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, John is an eyewitness. He had the authority to write these things on the subject of the word of life. And in your New King James Bible, you can notice the word word is capitalized because in context, it's talking about Jesus. So personal pronouns like he or him and the name Jesus, the Lord Jesus, those will be capitalized uh, to show that it's speaking of God. Now, to appreciate what John is saying here, we have to go to, back to something that he's written in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. If you could turn back in your Bibles, you'll see that it's quite similar. So he says, that which was from the beginning. That word beginning is very key. The word beginning and the word word in 1 John 1, 1 is the same word in the Greek that we'll see in John chapter 1, which says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the word, word, is capitalized because that's speaking of Jesus. That's the, he is the subject of John chapter 1. Jesus was alive before he was born of Mary in Bethlehem because he existed before the beginning of this world and all that's been created. He always was, he is, and will ever be. Jesus was there at the beginning with the Father. Jesus is the second part of the triune God. One God revealed in three persons. And the word is the subject of these verses. So Jesus was in the beginning with God, uh, the Father. All things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. In Jesus was life. 
And you see the connection between the word and Jesus if you go to John 1.14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus being God, the Son of God, and John saw his glory firsthand. Now, when we read this, we have to go back one more time. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1, because there's another beginning, right, in the introductory sentence of the scripture. Genesis 1, verse 1 through 3, because we read about the beginning. So John writing is now alluding to what was written at the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Based on John's testimony, the Father, Jesus, and now the Holy Spirit we see were all together. So the the Trinity is, is shown here that they existed or God existed in eternity past. The world had a beginning. It has a creator. And when God said, let there be light, there was light. And it's significant that before anything could be seen, the voice of God was heard. It's very significant. Because 1 John 1, it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, so you see that it's that thread is woven throughout all those passages. So Jesus was in the beginning. John had heard his voice. His light, Jesus is the light of the world who has come, and in him was life. And so if you could turn back to 1 John chapter 1. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So he had heard that voice, the voice that said, let there be light. John heard it with his ears. He heard Jesus speak, that same voice. And it says that he saw him. We have seen with our eyes. And this is not, this is not a casual glance. It means that he looked intently upon him. Because he says there, we've seen with our eyes. So you're like, I saw it. Like, did you see that movie? Oh yeah, I saw that movie. Um, but then, which we have looked upon. So that he's going a little deeper with that second one. This is to look at uh, carefully observing. And it's the word in the Greek from which we get the word theater. So you are, like if you're watching a play for a couple of hours and you're focused, you're intent on this one thing and you're contemplating it. Don't you guys like it when you watch a movie or a play and you actually think about it later? You're like, oh, that's weird. Why did that happen wouldn't it have been better if this happened or, you know, all the different things that we might think. It means to contemplate and even to look with amazement where you're like, wow. Like, so I remember going to a magic show as a kid with an illusionist and just being like, how does he do that? I mean, that's part of the fun is trying to figure out how it happens. And you're looking at something that you just can't figure out because your mind is engaged. Like, how is he doing that? How does it, where did all those silver dollars come from anyway? His sleeves aren't that big. And you know, you're just, you can't figure it out. But you're, you're thinking about it. And when John heard Jesus, when he saw the things he did, he was like, wow, how does this work? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? He just, the dead person, he speaks to him and they hear 
and they get up. How is this possible? Now, I don't know if you've re read it, but uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in Scandal of Bohemia, uh, he wrote of this discussion between Sherlock Holmes and Watson. And, and Sherlock, he's a bit smug, and he's like, you know, Watson, you see, but you do not observe. And then he started discussing something. He says, how many steps come up to my house here at 221B Baker Street? And Watson's like, any number of steps. I, you know, have you walked up those steps before? Oh, yeah, I've walked them. I have no idea how many. It could be any amount. I walk up steps all day. And he says, so Sherlock says, I know there are 17 steps because I have seen and observed. So everyone had seen the steps, but if you observed the steps, you would have counted them. If you guys have any steps in your house, do you know how many steps there are? Some of you have observed. Others of you have not. You have seen, but you have not observed. Now, Sherlock, he made this a practice. Everything he was going to observe, every tiny detail, seemingly insignificant, he was going to just file away and think, I mean, if you could just go crazy counting all the steps. You know, how many blinds are there? and How many chairs? How many rows of chairs? So, anyway. But the idea is there. We see, but we do not observe. He says, I have seen and observed Jesus. I have looked upon him intently. I have been an eyewitness of his power and the things that he said and did. And he goes further. He says, I have touched him. Our hands have handled him. He was not a figment of my imagination. When I was eating food with him, I leaned on him and I spoke with him. He's a real person. And when he rose from the dead, our hands touched him. You guys know the story of, of Thomas, right? When Jesus appeared to the twelve, he wasn't with them. And Thomas says, unless I put my fingers in the prints of those nails, I will not believe he's alive. I will not believe. And Jesus appears in the midst and says, peace unto you. And he singles Thomas out and he says, Thomas, here you go. Touch me and see. You know, put your hand into my side. That's written in John chapter 20. And he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we may not have seen Jesus with our physical eyes. We may not have heard him with our ears. We may not have handled him as John did. But through the testimony of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit coming into our life, we can say we have seen him, we have heard him, and we can know him. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you believe, if you believe these things. As John knew Jesus, you can know Jesus. Do you want to know Jesus like that? Does that have any interest? Do you have any interest to know Jesus like John knew Jesus? With that sort of intimacy and closeness where you know the man, you know him. I can't make you want to do that, but I, I sincerely hope you can answer that question honestly. Of course, in the affirmative. 1 John 1, verse 2 and 3. It says, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. 
And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the word of life, Jesus, is manifested. That means it's perfectly clear. It's on the world stage. It's been recorded for us to read and understand. The scriptures provide compelling evidence through many witnesses. So Jesus came, he was observed, John bore witness, and he proclaims that eternal life, which is in God, has been manifested to us. Now, we've seen Jesus and we've seen him risen from the dead. Being eternal, God, therefore, can give eternal life. Now, notice that John continues in this passage to use the pronoun we, not I. And this is important because he's not just one solitary voice claiming that he had a revelation from God that other people didn't. He was among many eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus, who had heard Jesus, who had touched Jesus, who could confirm his identity and his power and authority. What they heard and saw, they declared. And through them, the love of Jesus and the life of Jesus was manifested to the world. So the fact that John's writing this and the things he's writing, it shows us that Jesus is real. He's a reality. And the purpose, why why does he declare this? So that the people he's writing to could have fellowship with John and other believers. See, John had fellowship with God. Notice he says, truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. John wasn't lacking anything because Jesus wasn't around anymore. Because the Father had sent the Holy Spirit who filled them. And Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I go away. So we might think that John was able to have a closer connection with Jesus or or be have uh, more insight into him because Jesus was physically there. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, it's expedient for you. It's better for you that I go because then the Holy Spirit can come and you can all know me as I am. We can be one together. I will have the Holy Spirit within you. So the Holy Spirit within us, not just Jesus outside of us. So it's a, it's even a closer relationship than before. And, and his fellowship with Jesus wasn't like in the past, like, like you talk about someone who has passed away or deceased. We always talk about them in the past tense. Like he was a good man. But Jesus is alive. So he doesn't use the past tense. He says, our fellowship is with Jesus and the Father. Ongoing, continual. Now, fellowship is a really important word. The Vines Dictionary, to describe it, the word are communication, communion, and contribution. You like how they put all those C's together. Um, Now, the Strong's Concordance, it talks about partnership, participation, distribution. So fellowship is a practical connection between people. It's blending multiple lives together as one. It's Fellowship is more than just meeting in the same place or eating the same food or having the same belief system or, or the same interests, right? You could say, well, I really like the footy and I'm having good fellowship with people at the footy. That's not what we're talking about. Um, This is a specific word, koinonia, which is more than just social interaction. And I think that's what can pass for fellowship. Like, oh, we'll have food and fellowship. Basically, we'll hang out together and eat food. There's really no spiritual component of that necessarily. But he is saying our fellowship with the Father, we want to have with you. We want to have that fellowship. 
So these three things, just from the vine's words, uh, this is what should mark our relationship with God. And if our relationship with God is marked by these things, then it should mark our, our connection with other people. Okay, so let this challenge you. Communication. This could be described as a um, exchange between people. Preaching is a, a, a mode of communication. If I'm speaking and no one is listening, I haven't communicated anything. There's two parts required, right, to communicate. If I want to communicate via a text message or an email, I have to have a connection and someone needs to actually be on the receiving end. If they don't open their inbox, then they won't. We haven't communicated yet. So God, he's spoken. Jesus has said, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You must receive that. And that communication has to occur, okay, between us and God. There's this sharing aspect. When I was a kid, there was no inoculation for chickenpox. And so, it's a communicable illness, right? It's easily transferred. So back in the day, my mom's like, well, I've heard that your symptoms are far less severe as a child so she called the cousins over. The neighbors came over. Everybody got infected. That's just what you did in those days. Anybody else do that? Have the chicken pox party? Oh, yeah. Great fun. It means a week off school and a little itchy calamine lotion. You know, it works. So that's, commu- that's communication, communicable illnesses. Now, I don't recommend doing that. But so God's not just communicated ideas to us, but he's given us forgiveness. He's accepted us. He's given us salvation, eternal life, a place in heaven that he's preparing for us. Spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit. And we communicate with God too, don't we? We respond to what he's saying. We obey his commands and we serve him. We give. And even he says, if you give someone a cup of cold water in my name, it's as if you're giving it to me. I I will reward you like you're handing me that blessing. That's communication. Second one, communion. Now, the word is similar, but it goes a bit further. It speaks of unity. Okay, being one. A good illustration is how Jesus is the head of the church and we are his body. It's not just the head that talks to the hand, but they're working in conjunction with each other. It's one whole body, right? That's the picture of the church. Communion occurs when we're in agreement with God and he is in agreement with us. We're connected one with another. Now, the dictionary description of communion is the intimate sharing of thoughts. So it's the idea that nothing is hidden, nothing held back, completely transparent. God's done that with us, hasn't he? He's told us the truth about himself. He's also told us the truth about our sin. And he's given us the truth of how we can be saved and born again. And so we can be received into the beloved. Contribution. God's given us everything, hasn't he? Everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's provided for all our needs. And in light of his generosity, we're to be generous to others. God's given us not just um, houses or cars or, or perishable things, but imperishable. Eternal life, peace, joy, hope, all the gifts of the Spirit. The gospel's transformed us, and we can share the gospel with others. 
It's one thing to receive God's gifts, but isn't it amazing that he receives our gifts? That is phenomenal, that he would receive a gift from us, any gift. And he delights in it. You know, I love it when the, you know, you have that preschool craft of the, the dyed macaroni glued rather crudely to a sheet of paper. And, you know, the kid's excited to give that to mom and, and she loves it. Like not all of us do, right? We're like, okay, I'll file this. But see, God, he, he delights in that. Think of the scrapbook he has just being built up with all the, the things he finds so delightful about you. That's wonderful. So it's a good thing for all of us to consider. Is my, is my relationship with God, is my connection with God marked with communication, communion, and contribution? A back and forth, receiving and giving on both ends. We need to be on the receiving end before we can be on the giving end, right? And it's so important for us to realize that fellowship with God is not a static, automatic consequence of being a believer. I do not have fellowship with God because I believe something. No, that doesn't happen just by itself. Um, and it doesn't ma- it's not maintained. It's kind of like, you know, I asked Laura to marry me over 21 years ago. It doesn't mean that we are close today. We may not even be in the same room at our house anymore. You think the relationship can change. Um, and because she said yes doesn't mean that our relationship or love has deepened over the years. Right? That, that makes sense. But it can happen with God, too. We can think because I identify as a Christian, it follows that the life I'm experiencing with God is as good as it gets. But that's a lie. You may have identified with Christ for decades, but maybe in truth you haven't experienced fellowship with God, this kind of communication, communion, and contribution for years. And that's why we we can get disillusioned then. And so that's why John is writing this letter. So that we can know we have eternal life. So that we can have fellowship with God and with one another. A lot of people like the concept of fellowship with God, but we can be uncomfortable to have fellowship with one another. And let me say that this suggests we're not experiencing close relationship with God because these things always go together. If I am afraid or I am unwilling to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, then that suggests that my fellowship with God is broken. I'm not experiencing the fellowship with God that I need so that I will have faith and his empowerment to have fellowship with other Christians. So verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Now as human beings, we all know we have limitations, right? There's, we can only jump so high, run so fast, or far, or run at all. Um... So baking, for instance, when I bake, I have different bowls, different capacities, different measuring cups. And when I'm going to try to mix it in a bowl, that's not going to put it all over the bench. Like I want to use a big enough bowl for what I'm doing. And in the Bible, we're compared, we as Christians are compared to vessels uh, in the master's house. And we all have a different capacity. But 
we can all be filled to the full with the joy of the Lord. When Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children, there were, everyone ate to the full. And let's say there was a kid that ate one loaf, and there was this guy that finally tapped out after 10. He's like, all right, I've had enough. Now, it would be silly for the man to say, well, I enjoyed that meal 10 times as much as you because I ate 10 times as much. No, he just had more capacity. They were both full. They were both satisfied. So no matter what your joy capacity is, it can be filled to the full. And the word full, it doesn't have like a special secret meaning in the Greek. It means complete, filled to capacity. That's what it means. We go, come on. Well, just because you haven't, you don't think you've experienced that doesn't mean that God can't do that and it's not his will for you, right? So God wants, he has this for you. He says, I want your joy to be full. When we're hungry, lunch sounds terrific. But how does fullness of joy sound? You know, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And John's not offering something that Jesus hadn't already offered. If you turn in your Bibles to John 15, 9 through 11, we're just going to read a couple of verses here. Jesus offers his joy to you. The joy that God gives doesn't need to drain from our lives because of circumstances. But we can have fullness of joy and keep fullness of joy. John 15, 9-11 As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. There are conditions to receiving and walking in this fullness of joy. And what are they? When we keep Christ's commands and abide in his love, then we will have fullness of joy. And we will continue to have fullness of joy. Now there's another condition in John 16. So if you go one more page or two, John 16 verse 22 through 24. And Jesus had just said, hey guys, I'm going to be leaving. This is on the night he was betrayed. I'm going to be leaving soon. Where I'm going, you can't come. And they were sad. And he says in verse 22 of John 16, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We need to ask him. If we realize we are not experiencing the fullness of the joy of the Lord, then we are to ask. And if we, being evil, give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we can ask. And James says, you have not because you ask not. That's one reason why we don't have things is because we don't think to ask God for them. We try to earn them instead of receiving it as a gift that he supplies. So the joy of the Lord, no one can take from us, but we can relinquish it. It's like we can almost lose our grip on it because we stop meeting God's conditions. 
It's God's will. I, you can state this from scripture. It is God's will for you to have fullness of joy regardless of your circumstances. That's God's plan for your life, that you would experience this joy no matter what's going on. And a lot of us don't experience that, do we? Not all the time. I think no matter how, how, uh, how much joy we can experience one moment, we don't always find ourselves in that place. And that's why we need this lesson from God's word. So there's joy for you today. Don't be sad or sorrowful that you don't have fullness of joy now. Do you want fullness of joy? God has it, and he offers it to you. Now, what's more important to you, fullness of joy or fellowship with God? If you were to put those two and you you had to choose one, which one would you say is more important? Fellowship. That one's more important because without fellowship with God, you don't have joy of the Lord. But I think if you were to say, put them side by side, I want the joy. I know I will personally benefit from it. Well, believe her. Won't you benefit from fellowship with God? Everything springs from him. That's what we need. We need him. We don't need anything else. He will supply all our needs. Now, over the years, people that, that have, I've spoken to have expressed concern about uh, assurance of salvation. That's a pretty common concern. And frankly, a lot of those concerns are for other people, not their own salvation, which is interesting. But hypothetical questions are often personal theological questions in disguise, and it's good for us to realize that. And, and when life is hard, when we're facing challenging circumstances, we, we notice our failures, we, we are filled with cares and worries, and we don't feel saved. You know, we wonder if we're saved at all. Now, one of the reasons why 1 John was written was not so that you can know you have eternal life, like it's possible, you can have it, but that you know you have it. That's why he wrote it. So we could know we have eternal life, not just we can know, we can have eternal life. I was thinking it over, and I realized that I have met people concerned with losing salvation. I've never once met a Christian who expressed concern over losing fellowship with God. Never once. I've never had someone say, Is it possible that I could lose fellowship with God? Never heard that one. I don't think we value fellowship with God as we should. How critical it is for us to have fellowship with God. Now, it's often a lack of fellowship with God that leads to wanderings and these wonderings. I think of the prodigal, for instance. He demands his inheritance. His father gives it to him. While he's going through that season of debauchery and alcohol, you know, drunk, Drunk, uh, drunkenness and all that, spending his father's money. He was still his father's son, but they had no fellowship. There was no communication. There was no contribution. There was no um, communion at all. And it took the son coming to himself, admitting he had done wrong, repenting, returning to his father before fellowship could be restored. And then we see fellowship right away. We see communion, communication. The father expresses desire in running towards his son, right? He's looking for him, and then he's running to him. Communication. Then we see communion. There's acceptance. There's an embrace. There's the kissing, 
But he's like, you are mine. You are home. You're alive. You, it's like you were dead, but now you've come back. And then finally, contribution. He puts sandals on his feet. He takes off his filthy uh, clothing and he puts a clean robe and he says, here's a ring for your finger. And man, we're having a party tonight. We are celebrating. Fellowship. That's fellowship. So right now, are you experiencing fellowship with God? And we're going to have communion this morning. We're going to obey Jesus' command that we would remember his sacrifice till he comes, that we would proclaim his death, because in the proclamation of his death, we proclaim his love, because God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And by what Jesus accomplished on his death, through his death on the cross and resurrection, the kingdom of God and fellowship with God has been opened to us. I like that the son, he realizes because of how he wounded his father and just shamed him, he realized that he wasn't worthy to be called his son anymore. He says, I can only just beg to be a servant. Well, you know, we're not even worthy to be God's servants. And yet he's adopted us as sons and daughters. He has accepted us into the beloved. And he's saying, I don't want you to just be with me, but I want to be in you, and I want you to be in me. So on Calvary and ever since, God has offered fellowship, communication. In, our, in exchange for our sins, he has given us righteousness. Pretty awesome. So he didn't just wash us clean of our sin but he imputes righteousness to us. He credits us with being as righteous as Jesus. Communion. We've been united with God and other members of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are part of the body, right? And contribution. He's given us his spirit. He's given us spiritual gifts. He's given us a home in heaven where we will someday be with him forever. He's met our deepest spiritual needs. All of our physical provisions have been supplied. And I think the picture of us partaking of the cup and the bread is a perfect picture of fellowship because we're receiving communion, right? It's not just talking about Jesus, but there are these elements that represent his body that we're actually ingesting. It's going inside of us. If you could turn in your Bibles to Luke 22, verse 19 through 20. Let's read this together. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus is the bread of life that the Father has blessed, broken, and given to us. That we could be born again and filled with the Spirit of God. That we could partake of his nature through repentance and faith in him. And the cup that he passed, it represented the shed blood that Jesus would uh, establish this new covenant, not of law, but of grace 
and faith in him. Better promises. If, if Jesus only gave us his body and his blood, wouldn't that be more than we deserve just by itself? Like, of course. Like we don't deserve anything from God. And yet he's offered us fellowship with him. Continued, present, ongoing, eternal fellowship. And he's also given us fullness of joy. This is what God offers us. Not just with God in heaven. That's not when our joy will be full. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you fullness of joy when you're out of this cursed existence and out of this body of flesh, then you can have fullness of joy. No, he offers that to you today. Forgiveness of sins, fellowship with God, fullness of joy. Let's not leave this place without knowing we have fellowship with God and fullness of joy. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for sending your Son to be the Savior of the world, for giving us these promises for John's eyewitness account that he has heard you, he has seen you, he's observed you, he's handled you, the word of life, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, through eyes of faith, we have beheld your glory. And we realize, Lord, we fall short. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and we have fallen short of even your conditions to walk in the joy of the Lord and newness of life. And we pray, Father, that you would quicken us by your Spirit, that you would minister to our hearts and open our blind eyes even now, that we might realize our need for fellowship with you, that we wouldn't just desire joy, but we would desire your presence. We desire to know you, to hear you, to honor and obey you, to have that communication with you, the communion, that exchange, Lord, the contribution. Thank you for all that you offer us through Christ. And Lord, show us um, how we can be as the prodigal, how we can leave you and how you call us back to yourself, how you're looking for us, how you'll leave the, the 99 to seek after the one who's gone astray. And Lord, all of us have been that one. And we pray, Lord, that you would you would speak to us, that we would have repentance. You would grant us repentance. If we've been ensnared by the devil, Lord, break those chains through the blood of Jesus. And thank you for the new life that you have for every one of us, that we can all have fullness of joy, that it's not just certain people, but all of us. Help us to desire these things, Lord, and to see them fulfilled in our lives. So, Lord, as we receive communion, as we sing songs to honor you, work in our hearts, spirit, fall upon us in power that we might know your presence that we might pass from, from darkness into light. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promises. And I thank you for your truth and your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a team,